The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. I want to remind the men on the founding committee that we have a meeting immediately after class tonight. Also, continue to pray for Ulan. We... No change in the situation. He's still in Norway. We're still trying to figure out uh, what the next move is going to be, although right now it appears that he has been officially given papers to leave Norway, but we don't know when that will be or where he will go. So continue to pray that the Lord will watch over him and protect him. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord God is everlasting strength. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have the privilege, the freedom, the opportunity to gather together this evening to be refreshed by the study of your word. We thank you for God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells each of us and who teaches us the word and brings it to our memory in time of application and then uses your word to produce spiritual growth in our lives. The key issue is our volition and learning your word and trusting you. Father, we remember especially this week pray for Ulan and his situation in Norway and pray that you would watch over him, protect him, and that you would provide a way that he would be able to avoid being deported back to his home country. We also remember Dr. Meisinger, whose surgery has been scheduled, now postponed to June 30th. Pray that uh, the surgery will go well and there will not be any complications and that the uh, tumor will be benign. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be able to uh, get rid of the distractions in our own minds, things that have happened in the past few days, the things that are coming up in the days to come, that we can just focus our attention on the present teaching of the word, that we may be able to take in these things and they would become a part of our soul, a part of our thinking, and that they might be used by the Holy Spirit to produce spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in Revelation 2. We're down to about the last part, verses 16 and 17, but we'll take a little review to get back into the context. This is the third of seven epistles. Now, at the end of the fourth one, because I've had a couple of people ask me lately, but at the end of the fourth one, which is the letter to Thyatira, so we can make a break, not not in terms of the structure of the epistle itself, but at least where the chapters are divided, we'll make a break and go into a basic series. And that will be in about three or four weeks, I would imagine. Wait a minute, where are we? We're in chapter 2, we're down to verse 16, 17, so we have one more, Thyatira from verses 18 to 27, so that will take about 3 or 4, or 8 to verse uh, 30 or 29. So that will take about 3 or 4 weeks. So it will be towards the end of July before we get started on the basic series. Basic structure is followed in each of these short 
evaluation reports. There's a commission, an address to the angel of the church of X, whether it's uh, Ephesus or Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Laodicea, Philadelphia. Then there is a reference to a specific aspect of Jesus Christ's character. In all but one case, it is a reference back to something demonstrated in that vision that John had in the first chapter. Then there is a commendation, a praise for specific aspects in the congregation, things that they are doing well. And all but two of these have a commendation. So there are two churches that have serious flaws. Then there is a condemnation section. There is a reminder of the areas where they're failing to go forward, even though there may be many positive things going on in the life of these congregations. There are some things that need to be addressed, and that's true for every single believer. We never reach a plateau where we can just relax in our spiritual growth. I often think the spiritual life is like driving a vehicle uphill, you have two gears, drive in neutral, and no brakes. You want to take a break, it goes into neutral, you just go back. And that always happens. It is a constant struggle to move forward. So there's a condemnation to all but two. Just as there are two that uh, have nothing commendable about their spiritual growth, there are two that have nothing worthy of condemnation. We have already studied one of those. Then there is a correction, a challenge to change. That's where we are right now, looking at the challenge to change, because that's what sanctification means, not positional sanctification, although that is a positional change when we're transferred from being uh, outside of Christ to being in Christ, baptized into the body of Christ. This is an experiential change that takes place over the course of our life. Now, most people don't like change. That always comes as a rude awakening to every seminary graduate or every first pastorate. When you are a young pastor and you go to a church, you immediately think everybody's ready to respond to you and, and go forward and do things the way you think they ought to be done. And you usually find out right away that people don't want to change at all. There are a few that think they do. But most of them really don't. They just want to be comfortable and to be made to feel good. It, it's, it's amazing. Even some, a lot of believers that are positive, they really just want to hear the same old familiar truths. They really don't want to be challenged too deeply or too profoundly in their spiritual life. Because at the root of the meaning of change is that you're wrong, your thinking's wrong, you're living wrong, you're doing it wrong. And most of us don't want to hear that. We want to be told that we're doing a great job and you have tremendous potential and just God's so pleased with you. And see, the churches that have pastors that do that are busting at the seams. They have thousands of people. But see, the Word of God talks about what's wrong because it needs to be changed. Not in an an artificial manner which is what happens in legalism, where you just have this artificial code of conduct that gets imposed from the outside, where there's no real change that takes place internally. And so we have to address the mechanics of change. And in the Word of God, the process of change doesn't come overnight. It's not this one-shot decision that has been developed out of pathetic uh, theology in American evangelism, the walking the aisle mentality that all you have to do is is reach this point of commitment and walk the aisle and have a little emotional experience. But true change, which is what the word repentance means, takes time. And if it's real change, it takes place on the inside out. And you have to have change on the basis of two things. And one has to do with content and the other has to do with motivation. And the content is what drives the motivation, not emotion. Emotion falls apart very rapidly. Back in the days when, when I used to have a, a lot of uh, uh, work with camping ministries, one of the things that you would constantly 
be aware of is the fact that kids would come to camp, especially older kids and some and adults, and they would come up for a weekend or for a week, and they would be away from their environment at home, away from whatever the uh, besetting temptations are that plague their lives, away from uh, the negative circumstances in their life. Whatever it was, they were in isolation. They were with uh, fellow believers, and it was in somewhat of an artificial environment, and everything was very good. And in that context, they're uh, usually an intensified study of the Word, three or four or five Bible classes in a two- or three-day period. And people would go home with, you know, just feel so great, have this mountaintop experience, and they just feel great, and I'm going to go home and my life's going to be different. And by Tuesday, they're right back in the same rut they were in before going. And they, they, then they would just be even more discouraged and despondent and, the word of, you know, Christianity doesn't work, and I just can't ever seem to surmount whatever the problems are in my life. And that's because it's not this one-shot thing. It is the result of learning the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in a long-term process. And it's the Word of God and the Spirit of God that produce the change. Now, we have to respond to it in terms of our volition. It doesn't happen automatically. Now, what I mean by that is that somewhere along the line, people got the idea that the filling of the Spirit meant that if I'm filled with the Spirit, then when I get into some sort of testing situation or temptation where I normally fly off the handle and get mad or I succumb to some kind of a sexual temptation, that's always everybody's favorite to focus on, or whatever it is, that that when I get in that situation, I'm just going to blow right through it as if it's not there. And and it's not going to be any difficulty to, to not succumb to the temptation because the Holy Spirit's going to take care of it. Well, if it worked that way, then the Holy Spirit would be overriding your volition. And see, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not a mystical concept. Unfortunately, verbiage has been used that implies that. We talk about the control of the Holy Spirit. Well, see, that control is a, in some sense, is a valid word to use in the sense that it represents the dominant influence, but influence is a better word because control has a, an element of, that overrides volition. And it's not that way. We don't just blow through temptation. When we hit temptation, it's a, that's why it's called a test, is because there's a detraction to sin. Whatever your favorite sin is or whatever the sin is that easily besets you, that's why it's a test, is because we easily succumb to it. And the issue in change is that the Bible says there can be real substantive internal change produced by God the Holy Spirit in a person's life so that the areas that once were attractive and easy uh, sin patterns for you can be surmounted. Now, they may not be destroyed completely over the course of your life because you still have that nasty sin nature, and it's going to be the same when you're 80 as it was when you were 8 or 18 or 28. It just takes time to go through that process of growth. But there is real change, but it only comes about through the internal dynamics produced by God the Holy Spirit. But when we hit the test and the temptation, we have to make a choice based on what God the Holy Spirit's communicated to us. And that's what this word repent looks at, and that's what we'll see when we get into our text some more uh, this evening. Then there's a call or a command to listen and apply. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then there's a challenge, some statement related to the overcomer, the victorious believer, and a promise of special reward and privilege to the person who is the overcomer. So just by way of review, we're looking at the letter to the church of Pergamum. We've looked at Ephesus down here, then Smyrna here, and now up to Pergamum. In this area, here's a little tighter view of the location of Pergamum. It was one of the worst cities in the ancient world for the practice of idolatry. 
Now, every city practiced idolatry. You go throughout the ancient world and you go to the ruins of these cities and everywhere you look there are temples and there are statues to the various gods and goddesses and they were worshipped. And you can understand the people, you can understand the mentality of the people somewhat today if you go to that part of the world in Greece or, or Turkey or Syria, Eastern Orthodox Church, areas that are dominated by the Eastern Orthodox Church, and you walk into the Eastern Orthodox Church there, it's not like it is here. You walk into those churches there, and there aren't any pews. There are various icons everywhere, pictures of Mary and the apostles and Jesus, and the people come and they bow down to these icons and they pray to these icons and they light candles to these icons and they and they pray and there's no there's no teaching there's sitting and listening to anyone nothing like that is going on and that was the same kind of thing that happened in the ancient greek world except it was all over the city you didn't have uh, just you didn't have it happening just in the churches so idolatry was rampant but it was particularly evil in Pergamum because there they made a major issue out of the Caesar cult, the worship of the Caesar. And the Christians who wouldn't declare that Caesar was Lord were subject to uh, persecution even to the point of death. This is what is referred to in verse 13. I know your production and where you dwell. The location was significant here and is significant for interpreting this evaluation report. Where Satan's throne is, and we saw that that specifically referenced the worship of the Caesars. And you hold fast to my name. That's the praise. They held on to their understanding of the deity of Christ, Christology, the work of Christ, and they did deny their doctrine even in the days when they were seriously persecuted and one in particular was killed, Antipas, my faithful martyr. Verse 14 indicates these negatives. The first negative was that they held to the doctrine of Balaam. And the problem with Balaam was essentially that of licentiousness or antinomianism. He had a strategy that he gave to the kings of Mid the leaders of Midian and Moab who were united in an alliance and this is found in Numbers chapter 22 through 25 and he came back to them and he said if you really want to mess up the, the Jews what you need to do is establish on the perimeter of their camp a few temples to the to, to the fertility goddesses and make sure there's lots of lovely temple prostitutes there that'll attract all the men they'll want to marry the Moabite and Midianite women and this will destroy the genetic purity of the race and they'll all assimilate to human viewpoint paganism now that's the issue that we have to understand here because that is one of the major battles in our lives as believers is the challenge to avoid thinking like the world thinks, to avoid having the same scale of values that the unbelievers have in the culture around us, whether that's a, an American culture, a Western European culture, an Asian culture, Mexican, Latin American culture, whatever it may be, those cultures that are developed in human societies are probably the closest thing that we have to what Paul is talking about in terms of worldliness. There are characteristics in every culture, and there are values that teach people how to live on the basis of their own efforts so that they can handle problems, face life, uh, deal with the uh, obstacles they face in life and the successes in life on the basis of these systems of thought that are completely divorced from the Word of God. And we all have that in us. We are all just loaded up with human viewpoint thinking. I went over this last week. Human viewpoint thinking, cosmic thinking, satanic thinking are all synonyms for the same thing. Now, you can have a system that is loaded with positive ethics and many good things and things that and even systems that promote honorable values and integrity but at the very core it's done by man apart from 
exclusive dependence upon God. And therefore, it is, or it has no spiritual value. It may provide a measure of happiness to people. Believe me, there's a lot of unbelievers out there who are really happy. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, if you're an unbeliever, you're just miserable. Well, you know, there's a lot of unbelievers who are out there really happy. If they think that happiness is going to be uh, determined by having a lot of money, by having a lot of pleasure, having a lot of uh, a lot of things to drink and a lot of toys, and they go out and they're very successful and they have a great social life and a lot of toys and a lot of uh, people around them who are giving them tremendous strokes and approbation, they're very happy. But ultimately, and sooner or later, something's going to happen in their life to demonstrate that it's just a farce. It never has lasting value. The only thing that can provide lasting, true happiness and stability comes from a relationship with God and the application of Bible doctrine. So you had two problems in the church there, and they were very similar. One was the doctrine of Balaam, described in verse 14. The other is, we'll skip that, the other is in verse four, uh, 15, talking about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but apparently both were bought into antinomianism and licentiousness. And that is a particular plague for most everyone here simply because we have all grown up in and we are constantly awash in the moral relativism of our day. And if you go outside of circles of Christians where they believe there are moral absolutes that should govern our thinking and our, and our lifestyle, you live in a world where anything goes. And it affects everyone from the highest echelons of business leaders down to the homeless person down the street corner trying to squeegee your windshield. Everybody's impacted by this, and believers are saved out of that background. So it's real easy for us when the pressure comes to just say, well, you know, I've got grace. Isn't that great? I've got grace. I'll just yield to this temptation now, and then I'll confess it tomorrow. Or maybe I'll prebound and confess it now, and then we'll, I'll be all ready, Right? See, that's, that's, uh, that's antinomianism, and we've all gone through that, every one of us, and it's part of the growth process, I think. Just like any young, young kid whose uh, parents leave him alone for the first time, he's 11, 12, 13 years of age, and uh, you remember that because it happened to you when you were 11, 12, or 13, your parents left you at home for the first time, you were, you, and you probably did something, got in trouble. Maybe you uh, didn't do it the first time, but second or third time you did. You took advantage of the freedom that you were given. And see, that always happens. When we have grace and freedom, we take advantage of it. We test the limits of it. But sooner or later, as you grow as a believer, you realize that you may test the limits, but there are consequences. There might be but there are still consequences to those actions that you thought you got away with. And it begins to, and the more you get, try to get away with things, the more it breaks down the moral standards in your own thinking. Now that's exactly what was going on in this situation. And particularly, the assimilation with the pagan thought in terms of the association with the temple prostitution and eating things sacrificed to idols. In other words, they thought it was okay to participate in all of the feasts and festivals at the temple so people wouldn't think they were just, uh, they, they were separating themselves from everybody or that the Christians thought they were better than anybody else. And, and maybe we won't be persecuted as harshly if we participate in everything that they do. So we're not going to be a bunch of separatists and, and live a life that's distinct in terms of the way we, and our own moral and ethical values. We're going to go along to get along, and then maybe things won't be so hard for us. And that was the mentality. And the Lord Jesus Christ is just coming down with a sledgehammer, actually a broadsword, in this passage saying, I will come and judge you quickly if you don't change. And this is where we stopped last time in verse 16, talking about the... So there is a conclusion here 
therefore, and that is a, it draws a conclusion or inference from the above statement. That is, because they have these two flaws, there's going to be consequent action on the part of the supreme court of heaven and the justice of God. Therefore, there is a challenge, and that is to repent. Now, this is one of those words that everybody gets distorted in Christianity. And it doesn't matter whether it's in the United States or in some other language. When, when I've gone over to Russia, the word, the, the, this is a tough thing to communicate over there because the Russian word that translates repent as well as confess in the Russian Bible means to have remorse, to feel sorry for your sins. So if that's the word that's used, then you've got a problem every time you teach, because when people just pick up their Bible, they just become infected with this false uh, concept. Repentance doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins. It doesn't, feel to, it doesn't mean to have an emotional response. You might. I mean, we, we all do that. Sometimes when we uh, do something that shocks us, or surprises us, and we know that God can lower the boom, we feel real sorry for it. That isn't what brings forgiveness. But that doesn't mean it's illegitimate, but that's not what brings forgiveness. We have to make that distinction. But what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here goes beyond confession. See, all confession does is to get you back in fellowship. It doesn't move you forward. It doesn't solve the temptation problem Long term, there has to be a change of thinking. If you don't change the thinking in your soul, then you continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. You, there has to be a change of thought. And that's what repent means. Metanoeo means to change one's thinking. And the aorist active imperative here emphasizes immediate action. Now, how do you change your thinking? See, you don't just go out and say, okay, I heard that tonight from the pastor. I believe that's true. Now, I'm not going to have a problem with that sin anymore. Now, it's not quite that easy. Now, it may be in some areas and with some people in some sins, but we all know that there are areas of our life, there are areas in our sin nature where we are prone to sin and we easily succumb to certain temptations and it takes time but we can't do it artificially see that's what happens when you deal with people around uh, the world and they're trying to deal with all kinds of problems that they that they've uh, had in life whether they whether it has to do with sexual problems or lust problems or approbation problems or diet problems or laziness problems or whatever it is they say well you know I've tried everything and I just can't seem to lose weight I've tried everything and I can't seem to change and these are all human viewpoint techniques some may be very good. Some may actually work for a lot of people and produce a measure of success. But the only thing that's guaranteed is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit promises that if we do it His way, on the basis of His power and the Word of God, then there is real, substantive, long-term change. But it's not going to happen over, overnight. There is a process, and that process involves making the Word of God a priority in your life. When you get to the point that Bible doctrine in that particular area is more important to you than anything else, than the pleasure, the approbation, whatever it may be that you derive from uh, succumbing to that sin... That's when it's more real to you. In the case of these believers in Pergamum, when the reality of Jesus Christ's love for them and the fact that they, if they died, they would be instantly face-to-face with the Lord, when that became more real to them than the fear of persecution, physical suffering, uh, being a suffering, when the Word of God became more real to them, then they would be able to handle that situation. They were trying to handle it by simply compromising with the world. And that is what happens with every believer in, throughout history. We all have that challenge, is to compromise with the thinking of the 
culture around us, and somehow we convince ourselves that these culturally recognized techniques and strategies for handling these problems are valid and they're successful. After all, they work, but they're not the biblically mandated, the biblically defined method. We're not doing it on the basis of what you need, Jack. Okay. Just a momentary pause here. Okay. All right. Well, we'll keep going. Sorry about the distraction, but these guys are working overtime trying to figure out what this frequency issue is that is continually causing these little glitches. I don't know if you hear them, but uh, uh, it's a problem. It's a distraction, and uh, we'll just have to make it a matter of prayer. Okay. Back to talking about repentance. Repentance means to change. Now, I thought of a great illustration of what real repentance is all about, just taking it from our culture. Those of you who've been around Houston and Texas for more than uh, 25 years or so will remember that there was, were some real boom years back in the early 80s. And all of a sudden, we native Houstonians started looking around, and we saw that there were a lot of people moving in here that talked funny. Now, they thought we talked funny, but they really talked funny. You know, they talked about packing the car and uh, had these other strange accents from places like Brooklyn and the Bronx and New Jersey and Philadelphia. It was really hard to understand them. But there was an interesting dynamic that took place. It caught everybody's attention so much so that I remember seeing, seeing reports on the news about this. You see, what happened was you had this tremendous influence of Yankees. Now, I've really grown a lot and matured and changed and had real repentance because when I was a kid, I didn't know damn Yankee wasn't one word. Come to find out it's really two words. Well, so all these Yankees were coming down here. And when they lived up north in New Jersey and and Philadelphia and Michigan and Illinois... They voted Democratic all their lives. Now, you know, there were a lot of folks down here that voted Democratic. I think my folks voted Democratic for a long time, but that's because they were uh, Zell Miller Democrats. You know, back in those days, uh, if you were in the South, a Republican didn't have a snowball's chance in Hades of getting elected to anything. So you had conservative Democrats and non-conservative Democrats and if you and it was only in towards the late 70s that conservative republicans in the south were starting to get elected to office but a phenomenon occurred at the same time that you had all this migration of democrat yankees is that when they got south and they started being exposed to fine southern and texas culture and the fact that there was still a a a remnant of biblical truth affecting the culture, they began to understand what reality was all about. And in droves, they converted from their lifelong liberalism, not all of them, of course, but many of them did, and they came down here and started voting Republican. Now, that's repentance. See, it's change. They didn't necessarily get out in the street and put on sackcloth and ashes, although some of them probably should have. And they didn't weep and wail, and they didn't bargain with God, and they didn't feel sorry for the fact that they had voted for Teddy Kennedy all those years, although they may now. But they, uh, they recognized that there was a difference, and they changed. And as a result of that tremendous influx of people from up north who changed from who repented of being a Democrat, we started electing Republicans to uh, state office all throughout the South. Now, that's what the Bible means by repentance. It means a change of thinking that produces a change of action. And it doesn't happen overnight. Those folks had to come down here, and they had to be exposed to a lot of good Southern values, and they had to learn about that, and they had to pick up books by conservative uh, uh, political thinkers, and they probably couldn't find those in the bookshelves up north, and they had to be exposed to this. And as they learned, as they got content, the content motivated them to change the way 
they voted, and it changed the political landscape. And that's just an illustration of what happens in genuine repentance. First, there has to be content in the soul of the believer. There has to be Bible doctrine there, and that takes time to form a doctrinal foundation in the soul. And it doesn't happen by just reading your Bible for 30 minutes every morning. It doesn't happen by showing up in church once a week. That's the trend today, by the way. Those of you who have been around long enough remember that back in the old days, it was, it was standard operating procedure to go to church on Sunday morning, go to church on Sunday night. And in, in most churches, they go on Wednesday night, but in other churches, they might have Bible class Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night. And they had different, different things that were going on during the week. If you only show up Sunday morning, which is the trend today, most churches today, even Bible churches, few of them will have a Sunday night service. They just have Sunday morning. And a lot of them will run four, five, six hundred people on Sunday morning and run 30 on Sunday night. Folks just don't show up. They think that they got enough on Sunday. With the, with the indoctrination that each of us receives from the cosmic system around us every single week, if you think that you can change your thinking from non-biblical human viewpoint paganism to biblical thinking on the basis of an hour a week, you're playing games with yourself and with God, and you'd probably get more out of it if you stayed home and watched some evangelist on television. That's pretty pathetic, isn't it? But see, that's the reality. We need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit can use that to, cre- to, to perform radical surgery on the way we think. And that's what is going on in Revelation. Jesus Christ says, therefore, change. Change. Change your thinking. Change your behavior. Or I will come quickly. And that is the, the challenge. Now, repent means to change your thinking. We went through this last week. I want to make sure you get it. The changes from human viewpoint or sin, on one hand, to divine viewpoint. That's the, that's the transfer. And that's what was going on in, in uh, Pergamum, is that they had this human viewpoint thinking that said that it was okay to go ahead and go into the temples and participate in the temple ritual because they weren't going to say anything that directly negated who Jesus Christ was. Well, that's just a jailhouse lawyer's argument. See, they were rationalizing their behavior in order to avoid being in conflict with the culture around them. And the more biblical you become in your thinking, the more uncomfortable you're going to be in the world around you. And frankly, the more uncomfortable the people in the world around you are going to be with you. Because you're thinking radically in forms that are radically different from the way that they think. And the more our American culture drifts away from its historical Judeo-Christian roots, where it's been... Uh, Uh, dominated by a lot of establishment truth, the more it drifts, the more a division is going to occur between those who are thinking biblically and those who don't. And it never makes them comfortable. Jesus said that the world hated him before it hated us, and that's going to be the response of the world. And I want you to pay attention to this whole thing that we keep talking about the world, and there's a reason for that. So the changes from human viewpoint to divine viewpoint. Repentance is not remorse or sorrow. Third, the change begins with confession. We always have to say, Lord, I... And then we admit whatever it was that we did, and that gets us back in fellowship, but it doesn't move us forward. Now we have to start applying doctrine in the area where we were failing to apply doctrine. That comes under the category of walking by the Holy Spirit. That's forward momentum. Fourth, repentance is more than confession. It's more than confession. It's a change. Confession isn't a change. Confession is simply admitting you did something wrong. Repentance is a change of thinking. Fifth, repentance involves that change of pagan human viewpoint worldliness in our soul. And often, we're very comfortable with that pagan human viewpoint worldliness in our soul. 
it's pleasurable. I remember some guy years ago used to, uh, he was going to go to, he was about to go to seminary and he, he, he was conducting a Bible class for some teenagers and I was one of the teenagers and, uh, he made some kind of comment. He said, why do people like to sin? And I said, the sin's fun. And he argued with me for about 20 minutes about that. Three years later, he flunked out of seminary because he left his wife for another woman. I wanted to say, is sin fun? But I didn't see him again. Anyway, point number six, repentance of some thought can be a lifetime process. It can take us forever to get rid of those pagan values that are so embedded in our soul and so comfortable to our sin nature. But that's the point of change. Second Corinthians 3.16, Scripture is given for reproof. That never feels good. And correction, that's never easy. But the Lord promises judgment. Therefore, change or else I will come to you quickly. And the word quickly is that key word in the book of Revelation, taku, which means that not that it will come soon, but that it will come in a rapid or sudden manner. You're going to think everything's going great and the Lord's just going to hit you upside the head with a two-by-four. Then we come to verse 17. Now, this is a really fun verse. And it fits in a whole pattern of verses that come at the end of each of these evaluation reports. And that has to do with a special promise to those who will change. See, that's part of the motivation. It, it starts with content. You have to learn the truth. It's not superficial. If there's no internal change in your soul because you have replaced or exchanged the human viewpoint for divine viewpoint, then it's superficial. And if all you're doing is responding to emotion, then it's going to be a short-lived change. So it's addressed to the positive believer. He who has an ear, let him hear. That is, the one who is willing to listen to the Word of God, the one who is positive. And then there's the command, let him hear. Pay attention, in other words. If you're Harry, this was a ten hut. Pay attention to what I'm saying. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's God the Holy Spirit that is teaching us. It is God the Holy Spirit who was sent in order to make the Word of God clear to us, store it in our soul, and to bring it back to recall so that we could apply it at the proper time. And notice it is addressed to the churches, plural. Well, wait a minute. I thought this was just to the church at Pergamum or just to the church at Ephesus or just the church of Smyrna. No, the evaluation is of their church, but the messages at the end are for every believer in every church. And when we get to the end of this, we're going to stack all these up together because that shows us what we have in store for us if we're an overcomer or a victorious believer. Now, this is the key word and the one that is so often misunderstood and distorted. It's addressed to the one who overcomes. The one who overcomes. Now, why is that distorted? Well, there's two ways in which this is understood. There's two ways. To the one who overcomes, there are those who say that the overcomer is every single believer. Now, you really have to watch this. Now, you have to be careful. I want you to pay attention as we go through this. If you take this as referring to every believer, then what follows can only apply to an elite few. Okay, can't be something. Whatever the interpretation is, when you start talking about the hidden manna and the white stone, it can't be something that refers to every believer. It's to those who overcome. They're a restricted few. So this is the issue. There are many who think that the overcomer is every believer. And I'll show you why they say that in just a minute. Uh, and, the, and I've taught this before, and the question's been raised afterwards. There need, needs to be more clarification, so I'm going to run through it again. It's not the easiest thing to understand, but, it, but if you just grasp the fact that there are two categories of believers, those who are saved and those who are really pressing forward and applying doctrine. 
And this word overcomer is based on the Greek word nikao, which the noun form is nike, and it has to do with victory. It's overcoming something. That involves the application of the metanoeo, or repentance factor. Now you've overcome the obstacle. Now, what's the obstacle in this passage? Even though the passage doesn't use the word, and none of these passages do, what's always the problem? The problem is some sort of cultural issue that has to be dealt with. In other words, it's talking about the, the, that, that uh, remnant of worldly thinking that's in our soul. And that's exactly what we see in 1 John. Now, this passage I have up on the screen, 1 John 5, 4, is the one everybody goes running to to say that the overcomer is just a believer. Every believer is an overcomer. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. See, doesn't that sound like that saying that? Whatever is born of God. In other words, they, it says whatever or whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And that is taken to mean everyone who is born of God, overcomes the world. But that's not what it's saying. It's an important difference. And in order to understand it, we have to look at how these words, born of God and the world, are used in 1 John. That's what's so important. I didn't realize this when I started some seven years ago with the Gospel of John that I, when I finished the Gospel of John, I would then go through a verse-by-verse study of First John, Second John, and Third John, and then go into Revelation. But all these books have one thing in common. They're written by the same individual. And we're so used to studying Paul that we don't pay enough attention to John. And John has his own vocabulary, his own style, and when you get through a, a, a enough study in, in Johannine theology, you begin to recognize the different shades of meaning that he has to his words that aren't the same as Paul. So in 1 John 5, 4, it says, Whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, is he talking about faith at salvation, trusting Christ as your Savior, Or is he talking about post-salvation faith? In the context of the epistle of 1 John, he's talking about post-salvation faith, the faith rest drill. He's not talking about getting saved. He's talking about working out your salvation. Now let's look at a couple of passages just to make sure we understand what's going on here. 1 John 2.29 1 John 2.29, 1 John 3.9, 1 John 4.7 all talk about the one who is born of God. 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of God, born of him. Now, does that mean that everyone who is born of God is righteous all the time, never unrighteous? Well, at a surface level, it sounds that way. And that's why people call these problem passages, because it looks like the person who's born of God doesn't sin. In fact, that's what 1 John 3, 9 seems to suggest. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Well, wait a minute. I hear everybody here thinking the same thing. I've been born again. I've trusted Christ as my Savior. I know I have eternal life, but I still sin. So we scratch our head. What does that mean? Well, I'll figure it out in eternity. Well, you don't have to wait till eternity. We're going to look at it now. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. See, either this is saying that everybody is born of God doesn't sin, or it's saying that only those who are born of God can have periods in their life when they don't sin. Let me say that again. In fact, I'll try to put it on the overhead. See, superficially, we want to say that everyone who is born again, we'll put an R here for for regenerate, that that equals no sin. So every believer doesn't sin. Or is it saying 
that in order to have periods in your life when there is no sin, that that can only apply to a larger set of individuals who are believers. You have to be a believer before you can have periods in your life when you don't sin. And you know, we all have periods in our life when we don't sin. They're called being in fellowship. Now, I know for some of you those are only nanoseconds, but trust me, if you grow and mature as a believer, John says, there can be periods of time in your life that, you know, 5, 10, 15 seconds where you don't sin. You can actually grow. It's called abiding in Christ. And I spent a lot of time on that when we went through 1 John. And uh, when you abide in Christ, that means to stay. It means to remain. And guess what? If you look at that second verse there, 1 John 3, 9, it says, For his seed abides in him. It's that same word. And that word minnow in the Greek always talks about fellowship. Every time you see it, you better think fellowship first, not positional truth. No matter how it might seem otherwise. Only the believer can be in a position where he doesn't sin. Only a believer can practice righteousness. That's what this is saying, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Wait a minute, is that saying that everyone who's a believer loves God? Not necessarily, because we've studied this before in John 14, 7. Jesus said, Philip, how long have you... Known, how long have, have you um, been with me, but you don't know me? See, he's been a believer, but, he, but Jesus says, you don't know me. See, as a believer, you can trust Christ as your Savior, and in that sense, you have a knowledge of Jesus as your Savior. But that's not what it means to know God. Again and again and again, in, first, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, to, to, to know the Lord means more than simple salvation. It means to keep His commandments. That's in, also seen in 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. So you have two ways of looking at this. I mean, excuse me, 1 John 2, verse 5. You have two ways of looking at this. Either A... What these verses are saying is that genuine born-again believers practice righteousness, don't sin, and always obey God, because if you love Him, you keep His commandments. Or it's saying that only the born-again, regenerate believer has the option of performing righteousness, not sinning, loving their brothers. But not all who are born again, will necessarily practice righteousness, avoid sin, or love their brothers. It's talking about the potential. Only a believer has the potential of applying doctrine and living a life without sin. Now let's move on from there. So that means that the, the the, the concept of being born from above, being a born uh, from God, doesn't necessarily... Uh, indicate this perfect status all the time. 1 John 2:15 through 17 gives us another perspective on this subject. There, John says, don't love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Now, that's the importance of going over and looking at the passages like we have in 1 John uh, 2, verse 5, and John, uh, John chapter uh, 14, verse, verses uh, 6 through about 8, is that we learn that, that Philip is aware of who Jesus is. He's a believer, but he doesn't know him. So if you don't know him, you can't love him. And if you can't love him, you're still saved. So the admonition to the believer is don't love the world. So obviously the believer can love the world and the things in the world. So John says, look, if you're loving the world, you're attracted, you're constantly compromising with cosmic thinking, then the love for God the Father isn't with you. For, verse 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
and the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Okay, so we're, we're drawing a connection here to loving the, loving the world. That's the issue. The overcomer, remember, overcomes what? The world. You can have a believer that loves the world, according to this passage. So that means you can have a believer that hasn't overcome the world. That shows us that overcoming the world isn't something that's true for every believer, but only for a certain group of believers that are going forward. 1 John 2, 3 through 5, passage I just referred to a couple of times. Uh, John says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. But if you don't keep his commandments, it means you don't know him. Does it mean you're not saved? No. Philip, remember Philip? He didn't know Jesus. This is right before Jesus went to the cross. But Philip was a believer. Jesus said so in John 13. So, but Philip, you don't know me. How long have I been with you, Philip? But you don't know me. You have to learn the Word before you can know Him. And once you learn the Word, then you can keep the commandments. So, John says in 1 John 2, 4, The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. doesn't say He's not a believer. says He's not operating on doctrine. Truth isn't operational within Him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love for God has truly been, what? Matured. This is what happens when you grow as a believer. That love for God matures. Now let's go back. If you have love for God, what's that opposite to? First John 2.15, it's opposite to love for the world. So you're exchanging the love for the world with the love for God. And that's what John refers to in 1 John 5, 4, is for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. should be translated, for whatever is born of God can overcome the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, that is application of doctrine. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not saying he overcomes the world because he believes Jesus is the Son of God. He's able to overcome the world because a person who doesn't believe Jesus is the Son of God can't overcome the world. Only the one who does believe Jesus is the Son of God has the potential to overcome the world. So back to verse 17 of Revelation 2. To him who overcomes. All through John, the idea of overcoming is overcoming what? The world. Worldly thinking. What's the problem in Pergamum? It's cosmic thinking, assimilation with the paganism that's dominating the culture. So the idea of overcoming is the idea of overcoming the influence of cosmic thinking in the soul. And to the one who overcomes, and what do you have to do in First John to overcome the world? You have to learn the word, keep the word, which indicates you love God. So once again, it's right back down to that difficult thing for most people. It's learning Bible doctrine. It's learning to think biblically. It's being in Bible class, not just once a week or twice a week, but every time the doors are open and the rest of the time you're going back, you're picking up tapes, you're listening to them again and again and again, and you run through the whole catalog and you start over again. Because you never learn it all. We never get there. There's a promise. Two things. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. This is from the uh, Hebrew word mana, uh, or, or the Greek is mana, uh, mana, and the Hebrew was minhu. Minhu. I had some of you listen to Tony Evans on the radio. Tony was my uh, homiletics professor at Dallas Seminary, and he used to translate manna not what is it, but what it is. The Jews went out in the wilderness in the morning, saw all this stuff that came down with dew, and they all said, what it is. See, they had been slaves in Egypt. But see, you've got to get into the black culture. You just don't catch any of this, folks. <laughs> so they, so it's, it's what it is if we're going to put it in the vernacular. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to understand a little bit about the background in the Old Testament. The term manna refers to that miraculous feeding and miraculous nourishment that God provided for the Jews. It was called the bread of heaven 
the food of angels and the bread of life in the Old Testament. Uh, some scripture on that, Psalm 105, 40, uh, John 6, 31 to 33, John 6, 50 to 51. That's where the Lord's talking about himself as the bread of life. Manna was God's logistical grace provision to provide physical nourishment to the Jews on a daily basis. That Old Testament physical nourishment was a shadow image or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he came along in John 6:48 to 51 and said, I am the bread of life, the Jews immediately connected that to the manna that was provided in the Old Testament. So as the bread of life, Jesus Christ... As the Word of God, the living Word, gives life and is the ultimate source of the written Word, which gives life. So what we're talking about here is nourishment and food. It's hidden because there's something secret about it, something that hasn't been revealed before or something that is restricted. That's the meaning of the word crypto. Something that is secret, something hidden, and it's used as a metaphor for something restricted or protected. Something restricted or protected. So this is a privileged, a privileged food, a privileged nourishment. And the picture is that to those who overcome, there's going to be special nourishment. Now, now what else is packed into this concept of eating in the Bible? Fellowship. Whenever you have fellowship, it's pictured around a meal. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. It was originally connected to a meal. It's a picture of fellowship. When God came to Abraham, they sat down and they had a meal together. Uh, in Psalm 23, we will dine with the Lord. There's a table spread before us. All these images picture intimate fellowship. And that's what's going on here. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And then we come to the next image, and I will give him a white stone. This is the Greek word sephos, P-S-E-P-H-O-S. It refers to a small rock, not a large tablet. I will give him a white stone. Now, there are several stabs of trying to interpret this. Some of these you may have heard before, so I'll briefly deal with them. Uh, some have tried to connect this to the stones on the high priest's breastplate, but there's no context or uh, any, any connection to that whatsoever in Revelation. Others have tried to connect this as a white stone to a diamond, as some special reward. And again, there's no biblical data that would support that. Another approach has been to say that this had to do with voting. Uh, for example, in the ancient world, if you voted, if you were voting yes, you'd use a white stone. If you were voting no, you'd cast a black stone. And there's a number of people who suggest that as the application here. The problem is, the way it's applied is that Jesus Christ would give you a white stone, uh, is gives the overcomer a white stone, indicating his approval. And, and But it always goes to every believer. Because God approves of every believer in terms of justification. So it falls apart because this has to be something that's given to only a few, not something that is given to every believer. But there are two things that were going on culturally in Pergamum that connect to this. And one is that in athletic contests, and of course athletic contests, the, Olymp the Olympics and the, the Delphi Games and the other games that were going on in Greece were, were background for much of the teaching on rewards in the New Testament. Uh, in, the, in the athletic games, the winner was often given a white stone that had his name engraved on it, and it gave him access to the rewards that were given the winner and he would, with that, he would use it like a ticket, and he would gain admission to the great feast that celebrated the victors in the game. A similar use was known as the tessera hospitalis. That was the Latin term, tessera hospitalis. And it was a stone given by wealthy families 
to close friends who were not in the same social class, and it had their name engraved on it so that the person who had that white stone with his name on it would have access to their special feasts and parties that were given in the temple. So both of these last two cultural expressions indicate that this white stone with the individual's name on it gave them access to a feast. Now, if we tie that with manna, we certainly see that there's some implication here to a special feasting and fellowship with the Lord. We saw the same thing at the end of the first letter to the Ephesians, that to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So what this pictures through these various metaphors is that the overcomer believer is going to have special access and a more intimate level of fellowship and feasting with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And the next phrase says, and on the stone, a new name is written. And the new name is kainos, which indicates not new in time, but a newness of quality. And this relates to the overcomer, not the Lord Jesus Christ. See, every believer has got the Lord Jesus Christ's name ingrained upon him. It is the uh, overcomer believer who has his name on the white stone, which gives him access to this special area in heaven where believers are going to have access related, of course, back in... Uh, verse 7 of chapter 2, to the paradise of God. So this is the individual overcomer's name written on it, which no one knows except him who receives it. This is a personal and private description of each, each overcomer believer that is given by the Lord Jesus Christ expressing something about the individual character of that person. Remember in the Old Testament, God would give new names to many of the Old Testament saints, Abram became Abraham, uh, uh, Isaac became, uh, or Jacob became Israel. Others were given other names. So there is a special name given to every overcomer believer that has a reference to his character. The bottom line on the challenge at the end of the evaluation report to the Church of Pergamum is that there is a call to change. And that change can only come through qualitatively by a study of the Word of God under the teaching of the Holy Spirit. It takes time. It's a lot more difficult to do than just having some artificial external set of standards and say, okay, here's a rule list, everybody. Go follow the rules and you'll be okay. It has to do with the process of sanctification whereby God the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out through the means of His Word. That's why Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them, how? By means of truth, Thy Word is truth. If you don't make the Word of God the highest priority in your life so that it is more real to you than everything else, then you will never achieve that overcomer status in your Christian life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for the challenge of your word this evening, for the encouragement of it, the fact that every believer has the opportunity through the Holy Spirit and the study of your word to advance in maturity and to be an overcomer. But it starts with salvation. Perhaps there's someone here who's not saved. They're unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny. Well, right now, right where you sit, you can make that sure and certain. It doesn't involve remorse. It doesn't involve sorrow. It doesn't involve anything other than a change of thinking related to the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that he is who he said he was and believing that his death alone on the cross is a basis for your salvation, that you're trusting him and him alone to deliver you from the penalty of sin and to provide you with new life. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.